You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, a week in the Old Bailey for Julian Assange, facing extradition to the US. I'll be speaking with Jacob Greck, activist and journalist. The Greater Sunrise Development Project in Timor-Leste sinks into the horizon. Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist, will be talking about that. The situation for Filipino workers and students in Australia, both prior to and since the COVID-19 pandemic. May Kotsakis is from the group Migranti Australia. A monthly report on issues impacting on the people in occupied Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Dr Sue Wareham with concerns about the Australian government's militarisation of our biggest domestic challenges. But of course we begin with Mr Kevin Healy and we'll see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when we've experienced evil so profound, so, well, so evil, it makes Jack the Ripper look like a petty criminal. In this case, the mass strangulation of the Victorian economy and by flow-on, by symbiosis, the true blue Aussie economy and by flow-on, the whole world economy. Thank goodness there's not yet a universal economy or it too would be a victim of the worst evil we've ever known. We have known for years, thanks to the daily warnings by Lord Rupert of Wapping, just how evil state big supremo the pejorative Dan is, but no one could have imagined he was this evil, that he would sink to such depths as saying we must strive to eliminate a deadly pandemic take steps, albeit extreme, to prevent as many people as possible contracting the virus when the economy simply can't afford such extremes. As sensible, responsible, caring business class spokespeople point out, the cost of elimination is far too high, that we simply can't afford it, must strike a balance, must accept deaths, brackets, other people's deaths, to prevent the truly tragic death, the death of the economy, so debilitated by the disease that that reliable source of truth and balance, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs predicts unemployment will soar from 7.5% to 20%. We thought it was already at 20%, but anyway... Uh, Thanks to Dan, and no one cares more for workers than the Institute of Public Very, Very Private. Why, for years it's been warning wages and conditions are already crippling the poor besieged economy, poor besieged caring employers, that those struggling employers could employ lots and lots more people if but uncaring workers would lower their expectations. Uh, You believe we put to the Institute of, that government services should be contracted out to the private sector efficiency and remove the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector. Certainly, government should keep out of the way of business. Uh, but, but, but the second wave of COVID arose from contracting out to the private sector. Uh, showing how evil the pejorative Dan is, trying to blame the private sector for his irresponsibility. 
Hmm, strong logic there. We might criticise the pejorative dad for contracting out as well, but coming from a different direction, I suspect. One great corporate figure offered a solution to the economic downturn, remove, quote, the dead hand of government. So the government should withdraw JobKeeper immediately and stop paying your workers' wages, withdraw all, assi all assistance uh, like subsidies, grants, allowing trading while insolvent, easing corporate reporting requirements, reducing workers' wages and conditions, that, that sort of thing. No, no, that is the role of government, brought about because of the numerous problems the efficient private sector faces because of the dead hand of government. Mm, more strong logic. Notice Viva Profits Energy says that only a government support package can save our Geelong refinery from closing. Uh, so the government would then share the profits. Certainly not. We can't have the dead hand of government dragging down our corporate efficiency. Following my bad accent there, the pot calling the kettle the water of the week for more contributions than we dare list to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, a couple of examples. Donald boasted the US of could have a COVID vaccine within weeks, a sensational vaccine, best ever, ever. And when the opposition vice-big Supremo candidate Kamala harassed the workers, suggested he might have been just a shade optimistic, a shade hyperbolic, Donald attacked her reckless anti-vaccine rhetoric, totally ignoring his own reckless pro-vaccine rhetoric. And then, if the pot coin the kettle needed any more contributions, he accused the other lot of politicising the issue and... I repeat, this is Donald speaking, um, they'll say anything. Donald? Well, he'd know, he's the expert. Sorry, Donald, but you're pot calling the kettle the war virtual one, because we can't get it to you at the moment, although this might change next week or the week after when we have your sensational best ever, ever vaccine. Oh, no, no, of course, I forgot. You, you've decreed it will only be available to... US of citizens, and then presumably only those who vote for you. You wouldn't want to waste it on those commie, greenie, anti-US of violent Democrats. Oh, listener, if only they were the threat to the US of economy that Donald paints them, rather than if they do win, just returning the US of to business as usual. There's so many contributions to the award, like as Donald whips up panic about commie violence and looting and murder on the streets. If he isn't elected, he has also admitted he played down the COVID threat because a good leader doesn't create panic. Not a lie, mind you, just great leadership. In a big double, Donald also picks up the Pat Kennelly Vote Early and Often Award for advising his deep-thinking voters to vote by post and then turn up early at the ballot box and vote again, while declaring Democrat votes in the postal ballot will be rigged. Biggest rig ever, ever. Nothing if not consistent, the old Donald, and proving once again that there's no need for satirical embellishment with Donald, we can't compete. For our young listener, Pat Kennelly was a Socialist Party senator credited with urging supporters to vote early and often. 
True story, bit of self-indulgence here. Pat Canelli chaired the board of 3KZ, then a union-controlled commercial station located upstairs in Trades Hall, where we pre-recorded the Labor Hour for broadcast every Sunday. Joan Coxedge recorded a piece which was dropped, and we discovered Canelli had ordered it to be dropped. So from Joan's place next morning, I rang him under a false name, Peter something or other, as a journalist, because he knew me, and asked why. Yeah, when I know Peter, he shared his wisdom on gender matters. Women are okay from the shoulders down, but above the shoulders. <laughs> what a fun life Mrs. K must have had. Fun life too for the 2,500 airline that used to be our airline baggage, handlers, cleaners and ground staff faced with redundancy with sadly having to be let go after Supremo Alan Joystick announced their jobs would be contracted out. But if they lose their jobs, they'll have no one to blame but themselves. It's their own fault. See, all they've got to do is put in a bid for the contract. And as an aside, if they don't get it, then that's probably why it's called contracting out. Out you go. And they complain that they'll need help to engage professional consultants to prepare their bid because other bids will have lots of experience at bidding for other workers' jobs. But... How selfish. As Alan pointed out, given the impact of COVID-19 on the business, they will not be providing additional funding beyond this support. And why should they? The airline that used to be throws them a lifeline and that's not good enough for them. They want more and more and more. Beyond this support, Alan said, well, whatever that support is, he didn't say, but it must be that they can bid for their own jobs as long as they undercut other bidders which would mean undercutting themselves as well. But they can't expect the exorbitant wages and conditions they've been whooping it up on, living off Alan Joystick's generosity. Oh, and to win the bid, just in case we were thinking they mightn't have to undercut their own wages and conditions, they need to find, Alan said, $100 million a year savings in staff costs and another $80 million to upgrade equipment which apparently is their responsibility and not the airline board's responsibility. And they've got all of two more weeks to do that, all of which shows the airline that used to be is all heart. Interesting timing of the week. See, there's been more than suggestions that former ABC, among other things, foreign correspondent Peter Barnett, I'll use real names, whose brother Harvey became an arch-conservative head of our security forces, was working for or passing information on to our international security, that is, spying organisations, while working as a journalist. Well, Monday, a former train killer intelligence person from the Troubluwazi Offence Association, whatever that is, who just loves a bit of train killing, came out and declared that a journalist passing on information to your own government means you are not an agent or spy. That could have done with a bit of clarification, but did he, they know, what was coming in the rest of the week? But evil Chinese journalists can be spies, but good, good, loyal Troubluwazis like Peter Barnett cannot be spies. For a government so upset at the pejorative Dan's economic damage, we have to admire the way they're handling our relationship with a country that takes 40% of our exports uh, for the time being. On spies and interference, another commemorative 
Egypt be 9-11 disaster, to adopt the US of terminology 9-11, the slaughter and torture and disappearance of thousands as the US of overthrew the elected government of Chile and installed the butcher pinch of shit. Finally, and not unrelated to the security lots, what in that vision of the sorry coppers getting stuck into right-wing COVID deniers, I thought, do they realise these are not left-wing protesters? What's gone wrong? Good afternoon. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio a 5 am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. On Friday, I spoke with activist and journalist Jacob Crick, and the focus of the interview was the USA extradition hearing in Britain for Julian Assange. I began by asking him what had been happening over the week in that bastion of British justice, the old Bailey. Well, what's been happening, it seems to me, is that the old Monty Python crew have got back together and decided to write a script about the travesties of British justice. It's about, it makes as much sense as anything else of the way they're, they're treating this court case. I mean, they, they're up to their now third indictment. They had to re-arrest Julian while he was already in custody on Monday morning. And then they gave him an indictment, the first time that he'd seen the new superseding indictment, which they're actually calling the replacement indictment for legal reasons, was Monday morning, hundreds and hundreds of pages, about an hour before his trial started. You know, normally when given a choice between bugger up and conspiracy, I go for bugger up. But some of the things they've been doing... They couldn't get their tech working to start with. They had a number of people on their um, on their lists to log in to a teleconference of the court, and then because a few people were put on the list incorrectly, they decided to kill the whole feed. So, you know, people like Amnesty International, for example, who anybody would say is a legitimate observer in human rights trials, were not able to follow the proceedings in the court. I got a call from John Shipton on Tuesday night, so Tuesday morning their time, Julian's dad, who was telling me that they were given a room to where they can follow the proceedings, which was on the sixth floor of the old Bailey, yet none of the lifts were working. So you had the spectacle of um, 
John, along with John Pilger and then Craig Murray, none of them still sprightly youths, I've got to say, being made to trudge up six flights of stairs so they can watch proceedings and listen to proceedings through a tinny speaker on a mobile television set. These are the kind of right down to brass tacks games they're playing to ensure that um, that the court case is anything but just. What are the new charges? Well, basically the new charges, I I guess the best way to describe that is to talk about the old charges to, to start with. The old charges were basically around the time of the leaking of the collateral murder video through private manning and were all about the dissemination of that. The new charges go from the inception of WikiLeaks right up into the present day. And what they do is they take the they take the emphasis. There are no new charges, I've got to say. The charges remain the same. What they've changed is the narrative around the charges. And the narrative has changed in that they take the emphasis away from publishing and put it on trying to paint Julian as a hacker and talk about him assisting people like Edward Snowden, talk about him speaking at deep conferences uh, around the world and encouraging people to leak documents. They talk about him providing assistance for a whistleblower to cover their tracks and things like this. So they basically try to take a whole lot of instances over the entirety of WikiLeaks' existence, cut and paste them to make him look like this almost James Bond villain, Machiavellian character you know, the the hacker in shadowy black, bring up things of other ways that weren't specifically to do with the United States military as a way of saying, well, how does this impact your stated claims that you wanted to expose war crimes? They're just going, they've got everything they can over, as I say, the entirety of WikiLeaks' existence right up to and including the day the indictment was written. So it's not even just that he's... And while he was in the embassy or indeed Belmarsh, the activities of WikiLeaks that he's still the titular head of are being investigated. Is the public prosecutor up to the job? The public prosecutor? Well, it's it's almost like, look, I'm thinking of the term the drover's dog. The whole weight of the British system seems to be so, so slewed against Julian that the drover's dog... Could run, could run the case. After, for example, on the first day of the trial, when Julian's defence pointed out that with all this new information, they needed some time, well, they needed either some time to prepare their defence or and they should wipe out the, um, the new indictment, proceed on the benefit of the old one, the judge heard a couple of arguments on either side, said, no, 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 and then read a pre-prepared statement, which tells you that regardless of what happened in court, she already had her pre-prepared written ruling. And, and she made no, went to no pains to conceal the fact she was just ruling what she'd prepared to rule before she'd heard any arguments. Because the indictment has changed and the narrative of the indictment has changed, and they wanted to the Julian's defence team wanted to speak to their witnesses 
And she's ruled no, that the witnesses, she, she tried to rule that the witnesses couldn't be cross-examined and then compromised to the fact that the witnesses could be asked about their written statements for no more than 30 minutes, guillotined their testimony. And the witnesses were going to speak to the narrative of the original indictment, but because it's too late to change witnesses and they're not allowed to speak fully in the courtroom, Julian's defence are being forced to use witnesses against an indictment which is no longer current because it's been replaced rather than superseded, I believe the technical term is. So these are the kind of shenanigans that have been taking place. And now, of course, on Thursday, the court case has been postponed because one of the, I think it was the pros one of the members of the prosecution team, um, his partner was found to have COVID symptoms. And so until everybody's tested for COVID, the trial is postponed and it's um, resitting on Monday morning to determine whether the tests were positive and whether it could go ahead. The judge has got form, hasn't she, as you've reported before? Vanessa Barista has got form. She's not really a senior magistrate. The problem is that the judge who's still in charge of the case, who seems to be directing um, Vanessa Braster, Lady Arbuthnot, has got form. Not only has she got form, and she still is in charge of this case, I understand. And her husband, Lord Arbuthnot, is um, one of the people who was on the Armed Services Committee, whose activities have been, what's the word, um, exposed by WikiLeaks and whose, you know, whose whole family is involved in a whole lot of military endeavours that WikiLeaks have touched on. So she hasn't recused herself to this point. She hasn't recused herself from being involved in the case. So the idea of an independent judiciary has gone, through, has gone out the window. Is that why she's put the other judge in so that there's not so much conflict of interest in it? Well, we don't know why just put the other judge in officially, but that has to be the reason to see that it's being done. But the point is, she appointed the other judge, magistrate, to run the case, and yet hasn't recused herself from the case. So even that is, un is unusual in a court trial. Either she's going to say, I'm involved, therefore I can't be the person hearing the case, or... I'm not involved and I'm going to continue to hear the case. But what she's done is she's placed a subordinate in the position to hear the case and is still behind the scenes in charge of the case. It's something, it's, it's unusual, to say the least. It's not unprecedented, but it's unusual, particularly in such a high-profile case where such close conflict of interests have been exposed and haven't been addressed. They have not even addressed the fact that she has these conflicts of interest. And it makes people wonder the uh, her junior and barista reading from pre-prepared judgments and when any point of law comes up that she feels a little bit uncertain of, she calls a 10-minute adjournment, goes behind the scenes and comes out with a prepared statement about how they're going to deal with it. Is Vanessa Barista actually even the magistrate looking after this, or is she just a figurehead reciting the words of um, Arbuthnot or indeed the prosecution team? 
just wondering how this case is being reported in the UK and also, I suppose, in the US. We've had our media here, or a couple I've read, that it's great that he's clean-shaven, he's wearing a suit, and he's got clean-cut appearance. That's it. He's looking good. He's looking good, isn't he? And um, it says something, doesn't it, when they don't want to talk. I mean, I saw something on the, I think it was the SBS News the other night that actually spoke about some of the things that WikiLeaks exposed, in particular the collateral murder video. But what they're doing is they're making, they're continuing to make the trial about Julian, who he is as a person, and quite frankly, an unsavoury person is what they're trying, what they're trying to, what they've painted for the last ten years. Now, by showing him clean shaven and clean cut, I don't know what they're trying to, what they're trying to do there. Whether they're saying he's doing all right or they're treating him well, but um, yeah, he has gone to great pains to appear as look as appear as I try to appear in court. I don't go to court with me with me dreads out and unshaven either, you know. We all put a suit on to go to court, but they're somehow making a trying to use this as a point of saying that he's been treated all right and um, concerns about his health and all the rest of it are um are to be ignored. But again they're making it about this shadowy figure, Julian Assange, rather than about what the trial is about and that is that he exposed US war crimes. And not only US problems but illegal activities of banks, of diplomatic services, of corporations, of governments around the world. And they're doing everything they can. They can't, re- they can't not report this case. So they're doing everything they can to report it in the most superficial manner they can. And also the fact that the major newspapers or publishers published what he, what he gave them, and now they're, they're keeping very quiet. And yet, they published it, and that's the reason the Obama administration didn't move any quicker than they did on Julian's case. They were happy to have him locked up in the Ecuador embassy, what they call the New York Times problem, in that if they charged Julian for publishing, they would also have to charge the editor of newspapers like the New York Times that also published the articles. Now, the other interesting thing about the newspapers and the media outlets now, is that at the heart of WikiLeaks, the, I guess the technical heart, because while Julian formed WikiLeaks, stated, I mean, we have comments from him from when WikiLeaks first started, that the whole reason for WikiLeaks was to expose crimes happening in high places, to stop places like the United States and Australia undertaking invasions of other countries and committing war crimes. I mean, he was quite open about that. That was always the raison d'etre for WikiLeaks. But aside from the, the peace movement politics or the libertarian politics of it, the kernel of WikiLeaks was his quite brilliant mathematical abilities that enabled whistleblowers to anonymously go to a Dropbox anywhere on the web and drop documents and information without the possibility of being traced. 
that's the kernel of what the WikiLeaks website was. Now, every major media outlet in the world has now instituted that kind of Dropbox. You can go to the ABC. You can go to the Fairfax Press. You can go to the New York Times. You can go to the Mind. You can go to the Guardian. You can go to any mainstream media outlet and utilise this secure, anonymous Dropbox system that WikiLeaks, that Julian, pioneered. It's always the way, I guess, the pioneers get pilloried and at the same time their their contributions to science and to politics um, get taken up as almost axiomatic now. No one questions anymore that media sites should be able to receive information anonymously. Your thoughts on the so-called important people who are now coming out to support Julian? It's just a pity they didn't speak up for him years ago. Yeah, well... We have a situation, it's what I call post-political position. We have people like Bob Carr, I mean, a a prime example. And look, I'm really thankful that he's come out and he's changed his mind and he said he was wrong. But the whole time he was foreign minister, he allowed the Australian government to pillory Julian Assange and actually took part in it by blatantly lying. That's the only word I can use saying that he'd, things like he'd received more consular assistance than any other Australian ever has. Now, he's now admitted that that was just bullshit. But I guess once people get to a point where they've finished their political careers or they've reached the apex of their political careers and they have nobody that they need to crawl up the backside of to continue their position they can say what they really think. I mean, it says something about Australian politics and then even the social commentary at life that people are afraid to speak the truth while they're still in a position to do anything to help. Final comments, Jacob? Well, I'd like to think that listeners to 3CR are people who are engaged in their society, engaged in their community, engaged in the broader politics. So... It's one thing to tune in and be kept informed of what's happening about this gravity of justice, but it's another thing to be a part of the political process and to be a part of history. And it's time now, now more than ever, for the Australian people, for the 3CR listenership, to start contacting their politicians, getting online, writing them, letters to various editors, making comments on news sites. We need to flood the Australian government and the Australian media with demands that they do something to assist this Australian citizen. That's what we need to do now. It's one thing to know, but I'd like to think 3CR listenership want to do more than know they want to act. And at this late stage, what should the government be doing or what can they do? There are so many instances of, I guess, railroading in this court that the very least the government can do, and not just the Australian government, but even the Victorian government, because, you know, WikiLeaks was born in Melbourne and um, maintains its post office box even to this day, and bank accounts in Melbourne demand that they can make intercessions with their counterparts in the UK. 
anybody with half a mind, with half a sense of social justice, can see that justice is not being done in the Old Bailey. And it is up to the leaders, and I use that term in quotation marks, of Australian society to say, you cannot treat our citizen like this. They should demand that Julian is given a fair trial. They should give him assistance. They should provide some, what's the word, legal assistance. They should provide heavy consular assistance. And they should demand that Julian is released forthwith and allowed to either return to Australia or travel safely in Europe with his family. Everybody can see, everybody can see that justice is not being done here. And that is why they're limiting access to the press and limiting access to organisations like Amnesty International because they're trying to hide the railroading that they're undertaking at the moment. So the Australian government, all Australian governments at all levels need to start interceding with their British counterparts and demanding that this travesty of justice ends. Well said. Thanks, mate. Journalist and activist Jacob Greck and his program on 3CR is the Friday Rave at 5pm. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. In Timor-Leste, the country's new Minister for Petroleum and 
and Mines, Victor Suarez, is reassessing its ambitious petroleum development plans, which include the Woodside Petroleum-operated Greater Sunrise Project, claiming that the leaders in the previous government and the state-backed Timor Gap put the cart before the horse with their strategy for the petroleum sector by making political decisions prior to carrying out economic feasibility studies. I'm speaking once again to activist in Sydney, Peter Murphy, who has followed this issue for many years. Peter, can we go back to the beginning? We know that Guzmao was a prime mover in this project. Who were those behind him giving him advice? I'm not really clear on the, you know, the names of the people who were involved. The, the primary sources of advice he took were from within his own circle in Timor-Leste. You know, he made a few negotiations in the early 2000s with um, Malaysian companies, perhaps a little bit with China, but really uh, the reality is that developing a, a major gas field like Greater Sunrise, that sort of business is dominated by companies like you know, US, European and Australian uh, oil and gas companies, so Woodside, and Woodside was the principal one involved in this project area, and its partner was ConocoPhillips Shell. So, you know, there was one whole block of technical and financial advice which was on the side of the oil companies, and then there was an alternative source of advice really from uh, people that Janana could call on, with, which you know would, would have to say were marginal players in the industry. Well then who were those back even then who were warning that it would not achieve any of those expectations and would ultimately have dire economic consequences? Was that there as well? Yes, but it, this was all caught up in a big political struggle in Timor-Leste and also caught up in, in even bigger geopolitical you know, sort of conflicts around... Uh, you know, US, Australia, Indonesia, in which the oil issue was a sort of a sideshow. So um, in 2006, the Fretland government was forced to resign um, in an internal you know, calamity or upheaval inside Timor-Leste, where the coup was launched. And uh, the main instigator of the coup, as time passed, it was clearly Shenanagush now. And... Uh, there was also actors playing that by Australia and the United States. I think the, uh, you know, all those players had different objectives, but Janana himself, I think, was, you know, very much determined to become the Prime Minister and uh, set the course of the country you know, as, the, as the preeminent leader. So, you know, when you ask me who he takes advice from, you know, really he only takes advice from people who agree with him. <laughs> it's not it's not really a very thoughtful process, and uh, he's very much you know full of conviction that he what he thinks is right for the country, and it's very hard to dissuade him. So, in that two thousand and five, six, seven period, um, there was debate about Greater Sunrise, and uh, the Fretland Party had a, a, a also alternative sources of advice, but much more reaching into the international oil industry 
they were very wary of this uh, mega project approach and uh, were more interested in pacing uh, the development of the different uh, petroleum reserves in the Timor Sea in an orderly way and and also still very concerned about who owned them. At that time, the, the seabed boundary between Australia and Timor-Leste wasn't settled, you know, at the insistence of Australia. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of issues involved there that were just swept aside in the, in the change of government that took place in 2006 and then was cemented in 2007 and then again in the 2012 election. Well, it's now eight years since that 2012 election. What's been happening in that past eight years to change things? There was one moment of a sort of inflection where Shanana Gusmao more or less publicly declared that he'd failed and uh, that he was going to have a, um, a sort of national unity government. Uh, he stepped aside from Trump being the Prime Minister in, towards the end of his term. You know, some, I'm not sure, I think early 2016. And uh, there was a little period there where there was a, a sharing of power with him still controlling the situation as a senior minister and the minister in charge of infrastructure and so on. That was meant to defuse you know, a lot of tension and, and it did cool, you know, to the attitudes in Timor Leste, and there was more cooperation. But uh, uh, it, it sort of broke down after the presidential elections took place. In, you know, I'm getting my years mixed up, but I think 20, uh, a, 2017 it must have been, when uh, a Fretland candidate, Luolo, was elected president with the support of Shanana Gusmao, and. Uh, Everyone hoped that at the national parliamentary elections later that year, there would be a, a similar cooperative approach, but instead there was a full-on clash again. Fredlin was able to form a minority government, and it was immediately blocked by Shinona Gusmao's party, CNRT. So there was no budget, and, and eventually there was another national election in 2018. At that, uh, the manoeuvring about uh, coalitions and so forth ensured that uh, a CNRT-led government or dominated government would emerge uh, from those elections, and that's what happened. But the Prime Minister was Tao Matanuuk, who was a former president of the country. There was an internal conflict happened in the government coalition, which collapsed at the start of this year. It's very difficult to to give a clear answer to your question. You know, as I said, it was like an inflection. There was a sort of moment where a change happened, and, and, and better things were possible. Therefore, a better dialogue about greater sunrise was possible. But instead, it became the seabed boundary being settled in 2018 in a way which still raises questions actually about the ownership of the oil and gas reserves in Greater Sunrise, and uh, Shanana Gusmao sort of grabbing that event and saying, well, it was me who, you know, who won this latest round of the struggle for national liberation. He, he posed himself again as uh, the embodiment of the nation. You know, it's all sort of fallen back. What's happened this year is, um, to me, uh, late last year and early this year, when 
over 600 million US dollars of Timorese money was spent buying out uh, Conoco, Phillips, and Shell, um, and therefore getting a majority ownership of the joint venture for Greater Sunrise. The whole situation became you know, a nightmare because it really implied that Timor Less would have to pay you know, roughly 55% of all the development costs of the field, of the gas field. And apart from that, it also promised that it would pay for the entire expenditure of a pipeline to the south coast of Timor Leste and the building of a petrochemical industry on the south coast. They were committing virtually all all the resources of Timor Leste to this project for the next 30 years. It was it was really a frightful prospect in terms of the security of the people. And then the government fell apart, and not directly over the debate about Greater Sunrise. You know, again, it's an opinion, but I think uh, for whatever reason, Janamagus uh, Mao just felt so uh, he should be able to push aside Talal Matanuruk, the Prime Minister, and uh, get everything he wanted, which... In the first instance was, you know, a group of his close associates who had not been sworn in as ministers that his recommendation should become ministers. And then there was a second voting in the parliament about measures to handle the pandemic, which is, again, nothing to do directly with the Greater Sunrise. But both of these moves collapsed the uh, government coalition completely and a new uh, government was able to be formed based on Shredland votes and, and other smaller parties, and Taylor Matanuak is still the, the Prime Minister. And I think Janagos Mao is very isolated uh, for the moment. Right now, there is a chance to reassess the whole situation, and uh, that is with the Greater Sunrise Project. And that seems to be underway, judging from the recent media reports, that uh, uh, proper alternative, say, cost-benefit analysis of the entire initiative is being undertaken, which I'm very confident will demonstrate that it's a a reckless uh, plan and should be greatly modified. You know, of course, Jan, between then and now, the way the pandemic has played out, uh, we're now in a global recession, the price of oil and gas has fallen, the actual, you know, already Woodside had written off has written off Greater Sunrise as an asset entirely. You know, the prospect of it being developed in a timely manner for the you know, benefit of the Timorese people has also sort of vanished. So there's going to be, you know, some kind of economic shock uh, around 2025, 20, 26, I think, for Timor-Lest because of all of this. But perhaps uh, the field will be developed in the not-too-distant future, maybe by 2030, 2035 perhaps, and then we have to take into account that uh, the global efforts to rein in carbon emissions will also have an impact on development of these sort of resources anywhere in the world, but I still think it will happen. So the Timorese government and the people have got you know, some very significant uh, debates to have and also some new planning to manage what's predictably going to be an economic shock in five years or so. What do you know about the new minister who's now in charge of petroleum and mines? That's Victor Suarez. Yes, I've heard of him um, over the years, but I I really um, have no clear perception. 
But you have to realize that you know, team leaders have been developing skills in the offshore oil and gas sector you know, for roughly 20 years now, uh, maybe a couple of years shorter of that. And uh, you know, there are various people with skills in, in the technical side and in the financing side. And um, I, I'm just guessing that he, he has got that kind of background. And there is a sort of you know, a reservoir now of skill, not really huge, but but all the same, a reservoir of skills, which uh, you know give the give the government itself, you know, a more uh, reliable capacity to manage what's coming what's coming forward now. How much influence has Australia had? in what's happened now, the result of what's happened now. Yes, I think Australia's played a, you know, a very bad hand pretty well all the way through um, on the Timor Sea resources, the, the boundary between the two countries in the seabed and really played a very you know, dark hand in 2006 um, and through you know, the next few years. Uh, I think then the Australian establishment really got very tired of Shenanigus now, um, who, who turned out to be a completely erratic partner from their point of view. I don't know what they expected from him or what he promised them um, back in 2006, but uh, it didn't work out. So uh, I think they also, um, the Australian you know, oil industry, the foreign affairs establishment, the military, also a very negative attitude towards Freckland. In my mind, very badly informed attitude. And they are having to come around to re-engaging with the Freckland people um, in, a, in a more sober way. So there's a lot of bridge building for Australia to do. And as I said, with the seabed boundary, if you look at it, you know, it's got a terrible kink in it. Uh, just over the greater sunrise, you know, so you can see that instead of the median line being applied consistently, there was an impact about you know who's going to get a share of these uh, petroleum reserves, and that's, that's a great discredit to Australia and uh, continuing discredit really. Probably something will still have to be sorted out in the future. It's not really really over, I'm afraid. So. Yes, I, I think, um, you know, the, I have to say in this period it's been uh, mainly the coalition governments that are responsible for this. It was, you know, Howard in 2006, it was uh, uh, the Abbott, you know, et cetera, government since uh, 2013. Um, there was a brief window when uh, Labor was in power six years, which should have, you know, improved things, but they really didn't pay enough attention either. As an Australian, and, and I'm really, for those, all of us who've now had many, many decades of uh, concern about uh, a fair go for the Timorese people and uh, a real, I can't find the right word, but a real acknowledgement of the sacrifice of the Timorese people during World War II in the interests of Australia. You know, we've still got a huge, we've got a huge amount still to do. The Timorese people are really uh, our friends. They are going to be our neighbours forever and uh, we we should be having a constructive, creative, you know, nation-building type of 
relationship with them and, and not one which is just using them as pawns in a game. Finally, Peter, the other discredit to Australia is that two Australians are facing secret trials. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> the issue of Witness K and uh, Bernard Kaliri is, uh, um, you know, and you're right, another the, the aspect of the situation which is a bit uh, perplexing. Again, I think you can see mainly a vindictiveness at play here that the Australian government um, is very embarrassed at the uh, exposure of that bugging operation and their rotten uh, attitude and uh, practice in the negotiations way, way back there in 2004. The um, signing of the, you know, the settlement of the seabed boundary in 2018, you know, the ink was barely dry on the paper and uh, the charges were laid against these two people. They've been treated as traitors, actually, by the government because they were willing to give evidence in the uh, International Court in The Hague about the bugging, that is, that, that Australia had treated the Timorese government unfairly, whereas you know, normally, isn't it the case that the Australian government talks about its uh, great values, the Australian values that we're always willing to fight for, of respect for the rule of law, respect for international law, etc. So, you know, there's a huge, huge uh, contradiction here. And uh, the trials that are going on for Bernard Kaliri are evidence that there's no rethinking going in the Australian government about its relationship with Timor. And Timor left just whatever is being said in public the real attitude you can tell by their deeds and their deeds continue to be really odious. So uh, it's right that uh, a lot of Australian people are calling on the government to cancel this trial, drop the charges that have been placed. Uh, They should really be compensating these two people for all the damage that's been done to them in these last few years. Thank you once again, Peter. You're welcome, Jan. Trade Union and human rights activist Peter Murphy. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. At 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Philippine-Australian activist May Kasakis is a member of a number of organisations here in Australia supporting Filipinas at home, particularly under the brutal Duterte regime. One is Migranti, which together with other organisations are assisting Filipino people in need here in Australia. The plight of migrant workers in Australia during this pandemic not only during the pandemic, they're exploited, many of them, all the time, aren't they? And they're not all Filipinos. Could you give a few examples of what this research has shown as how these workers are being treated? Oh, yes. During the pandemic, we haven't actually uh, received complaints from migrant workers. So most of them are still um, working. Only a few that we have come across that have lost their jobs. What is the most of the people that we are assisting at the moment since uh, after the end of March are international students, Filipino international students. But they are also workers. They are considered as migrant workers as well, but they came here with a visa as international students, not as uh, workers. Since uh, the end of March, when we have established this Damayan uh, Migrante, that is a relief operation where we gather donations from people, from everyone, and then we distribute food packages and essential items to international students. Then we come across several problems. We actually started this uh, project when we were approached by some of international students that have lost their jobs. And they were actually becoming desperate because they have no family here. They lost their jobs. They have no means of income. They are not included in the stimulus package of the federal government like the job seeker and job keeper. So they have no means of even feeding themselves and uh, especially also payment of the rent where they live. So then we established this project. And when we were delivering those goods, of course, uh, we were, uh, some of them are talking to us. And also we, we formed a chat group to advise those students of what we are doing and if they have any problems to approach us. And then it opened the Pandora's box of the abuses that the students actually are experiencing here in Australia. We, 
knew about that before, but the international students that we approached before were very hesitant. They didn't want to complain. They didn't want to lose their visa or to lose their jobs. But I think the pandemic has actually sort of came, you know, um, the students have no recourse. So they have no recourse but to actually either complain or go home. Most of them, yes, that we have uh, come across. Can you give some examples of how they're being exploited? One of the employees of the college actually went to the Philippines. He went to Cebu, which is a, uh, a city in the Visayan Islands of the Philippines, and offered a great presentation. So in the presentation, he promises the students that yeah, you are going to have a good life in Australia, you can find a job easily, you will be paid big amount, and you can even save money. Later on, you can actually apply for permanent residency. Now, when the student came, they realized that the courses that the school was offering have no pathway to becoming a permanent resident. That is first, you know. So, like, administration management courses, there is no pathway because it's not a skill it's a skill uh, course that they can, you know, easily land a job. So that's one thing. And then the fees are so big to pay for. When they compare it to another school offering the same course, the fees was, uh, you know, much bigger than the other schools. That is one another uh, abuse. And then the standard of education of teaching, uh, one student said, or several students actually said that there was a time that they started with small number of students, and then it gets bigger and bigger until such time that there were almost 100 in one classroom, that they didn't fit in the classroom, that some of the students were actually sitting in the lobby. So that, uh, you know, the, the standard of, uh, of teaching was actually really bad, that they were given, like, say, sort of a, an exercise or an assignment without any explanation how to do it. So just give it to them and that's it. So that's another one. And then when they realize they are not satisfied with the standard of education, of the standard of teaching, they were not satisfied, they complained to the school, but they were ignored. So what they did is they tried to transfer. They transferred to another school. And they were given, yeah, they were able to enroll. And then when they were asking for the release, release paper, they were not given the release paper. In the meantime, they were already enrolled in another school. So they paid the tuition fee in that school, but then in the original school that they were enrolled, their fee continued to approve. And then when we uh, come across them, there were actually several students who have been threatened, who receive uh, collection letters from the collection agent and from lawyer, threatening them that if they don't pay the fees, they are going to be brought to court or they're going to have their visa cancelled. And this is several months after they have already left the school. Their uh, tuition fees could continue to accrue. So that's another one. And then uh, some of the students were actually hired by the school to do work. They were not being paid correctly. Like, say, they work after hours or they work more than 20 hours, but they are only paid 20 hours because that's the regulation that international students can only work a maximum of 20 hours, except when it is school holiday. So they were not getting paid on the extra hours that they were working. 
So there were several, so that is some of those that were actually raised to us by those international students, and they have already written, several, several of these students have already written to the schools asking for uh, appealing for consideration, but they were ignored. So in uh, April, when we come across these uh, problems, we actually wrote to the school and we asked them about these complaints of the students. We raised the issue of those different issues of that the students have mentioned to us, but they ignored the letter. So after two weeks, we sent the letter, and we didn't receive any reply. I think it was actually more than two weeks. We released a statement, publicized a statement about this situation. Then we received a letter from the school. And the letter was denying all those accusations of the students. The school said that if they really have a complaint, then they should have lodged it with ASQA. I think that is the Australian Skills Quality Authority. But they said that we have been monitoring and there was no complaint lodged. To threaten Migranti that if Migranti does not withdraw the statement, then they are going to bring Migranti to court for defamation. But of course we didn't, because we have, we didn't withdraw the statement because we have evidences. The students have given a lot of evidences, uh, emails, you know, and emails between the students and the school, the letters from the collector agents and from the lawyers. So we have evidences of complaints of the students. Uh, we didn't uh, withdraw the, the statement. The statement, and when the students realized the migrante committed that we are going to help you, we are going to you know to support your claim, and they realized that there were many of them, they lodged a complaint with ASQA and with uh, ombudsman. So there are already several students who have already lodged the complaint to the Australian Skills Quality Authority and also with the ombudsman. I think we're still waiting for some of the reply from ASQA with a student. The migrant is continuing to advocate for these students, and the number of students actually coming to us are increasing. Because in the past, there were already several colleges that was uh, closed or addressed by the federal government. Uh, In this case, though, we have no update yet of what the government is doing. But I think ASQA is going to investigate that was the latest that we have received. Uh, ASQA has uh, written to some of the students that they are going to investigate the, the school. Are these examples not only in Melbourne, but in colleges in the other capital cities? I think it would be, because this is a federal authority. This is not just uh, Victoria. Although the uh, the scheme or the, the scheme that is being used by different states for international students is different. Like here, it is Victorian education and training. In Queensland, it's RTO. So they have different schemes of uh, getting international students. But I think ASQA is a federal agency that monitors the colleges and universities. How many international students do you believe are impacted by this? We were only uh, approached by students from one school, from one college. We have been approached already by more than 30 students that experience. 
some of the students are a bit quiet, quiet, and I think uh, some are, because they received some threatening letters. Actually, there were threatening letters that, oh, threatening emails even by, sent by the school to some of the students. So some of the students are sort of worried to publicize or to raise their issues. Migranti Australia has also found that some Filipino workers are being labour trafficked. Are these students or these people on work visas? There are others that are not not students. Like in um, Western Australia, there were workers that were hired by Austin. Austin, I think it's a shipbuilding company. Or they were brought here in Australia as trainees under the traineeship. In that category, they can stay in Australia for up to three months. And they were also very much exploited. The wages that they were receiving was so much lower while they were working the same work as the permanent or the regular worker, but they were only paid very minimal. Apparently, in that category, I forgot the the, uh, visa category, Apparently, the employer is allowed to just pay them like an allowance so they can exist like allowance so they, they can feed themselves because they are considered as trainees. But the system is being abused by employer because they send them home and then they brought, they bring them back again, you know, or bring another set of uh, workers here as trainees. In the meantime, the three months that they have been working, they are not actually receiving the proper the commensurate compensation for their work. In our immigration policy, or there are lots of loopholes that the employer can actually use to abuse, to exploit uh, overseas workers. I'd imagine that these workers and these students are not getting much support from the Philippines government. No, not at all. Um, when the COVID-19 actually hit, there were lots of international students who actually lost their jobs. But there was a very strict restriction that was implemented by the Duterte government in such a way that some overseas Filipino workers who returned home were actually stuck in a certain auditorium for not just days but for weeks. There was actually one person who died uh, because of exhaustion sheltering under a bridge waiting for a bus that can take her to the province. So with the very strict restrictions, the international students are very hesitant to go home. But then, because they have no other means, rather than be stuck here with no family, with no income, many of them also wanted to go home. But the the airfare was so expensive. Because of the they cannot fill up the, the plane like they used to. I think they have to have some, some seat they can then the cost of those were being added to the cost of the airfare. So many students actually cannot afford to buy air tickets. So we actually campaign and we ask uh, the Philippine government, the embassy here, to help these students. At first, there was they said that there were, they have no fund to do that. But later on, we found out that some of these students were able to avail free airfare to the Philippines. So the, somehow, with the clamor or with the campaigns of community groups, the call for these students to be assisted, that is not still enough because there is no assistance that are being given to to the students here by the Philippine government. Once, 
when we were actually asking them to assist the the Philippine government, you know, the reply of the some of those who are actually working for the government or who, who are agents by the Philippine government, you know, there are several here who are actually campaigning for the Philippine government. They said that we or the international students or the workers, the Filipino workers, should stop complaining and they should just depend on the Filipino community or the community organization to assist them rather than keep on complaining. That's what they said. On the 20th of July, the Australian government made a number of changes to student visas, five changes. Do any of those five changes help the students? I think they would. It would help the, the students because there is like the extension of their visa, if their visa is already going to expire and they can apply online, even the fees for extension was waived, it will help. But it will still be very difficult for the students to really, you know, venture if they know that they cannot find a job to help support even their uh, day-to-day expenses, help a bit international students. I think the government has changed that to still encourage international students to come to Australia, as it is a big source of income for the Australian government. <laughs> exactly. You've been listening to May Kotsakis, and we'll have more from May on the program next week. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist poor thing Evil men with racist views Spread it all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And now to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association for an update on issues affecting the people in both the camps in Algeria and in the occupied territories. So first, Kate, the pandemic, what's the latest story for the people? After being very, very careful for quite a long time, unfortunately there have been some infections that have uh, arisen in the Sahrawi refugee camps got about 25, I think, infections, but there may be more. Our friend Tekba, who came to Australia last year, she's in the health department, so we're getting first-hand news from her. She says that if they can test more, they will probably find more, but they were lacking the necessary equipment. However, luckily now, the uh, African Union has agreed to give them some more testing equipment so they will be able to get a more accurate picture. However, I mean, the whole scene is bad because it's just really hard for people to isolate in the conditions under which they live. They live a very, very communal life, sleep in the same tent, eat from the same food bowl in the centre of the table with their fingers. That's the normal way. It's really hard for people to isolate and be separated from their families uh, at the time 
if they get a positive result on the test, or even if they're trying to simply um, be quarantined during the period before the test result comes, I'm sure it will increase the number of infections once any of them start getting in there. And that's, of course, what they were mainly concerned about. Does TechBar talk about the treatment they have for the people who are sick? I think they might have one intensive care unit or something. They haven't have very little in the way of intensive care, I'm sure. There is one national hospital that is much better equipped than the other hospitals in each of the towns, the Wilaya, as they call it. They would have to go to into Algeria to get better treatment if they were trying to save somebody who was in serious difficulties, respiratory difficulties, for example. That's a problem. But the other awful thing that's happened is that the World Food Programme donated a certain amount of livestock to the people in the camps, sheep and goats that could go to the families with special nutritional needs, such as pregnant nursing mothers and young growing children and elderly people. Goats, if they're mainly goats probably, would give milk, then eventually maybe some meat. This was an excellent program and it was really appreciated by the Sahrawis who come from a native um, herdsman stock. That, that, that is their normal past occupation when they're not piped up in, in refugee camps or whatever. They would be nomadic herdsmen. So a mystery epidemic has swept through the livestock, decimated the animals. So that is really sad and it's very upsetting for them to see their animals die like that. That's a, another calamity upon a, an epidemic which was really uncalled for. Is there any way there could be replacements or is there a virus in the air there? There was a, a, an account that I read, an interesting account put out by the United Nations. They interviewed a couple of people who'd had them and one of them said when they make sure that there is no virus left, then they will think of restocking but they're not going to bring new stock in until they feel that the whole place is clear of this killer virus. Let's go back, as we have in other weeks, to the military wall on the border with Mauritania. What continues to happen on that border? Oh, well, there's continued tension. As a matter of fact, my colleague, Ben Cummins, who has recently become involved with Western Sahara since he travelled there and his helping on the author e-bulletin, he um, wrote that he crossed there himself in February. It was very tense. But now the Sahrawis have decided to actually make a protest. The Sahrawi government has protested. The high-profile human rights defender Aminatou has spoken out. They are really requesting... NINERSO, the United Nations mission, to enforce the settlement plan that was adopted by the United Nations and both parties, which would not allow there to be a crossing through the wall at that point. Who is crossing and with what? What they're particularly complaining about at the moment is that it is uh, commercial vehicles, huge trucks full of goods that are coming from Western Sahara 
through to Mauritania and no doubt beyond, in other words, exporting product of Western Sahara, which is not Morocco's to sell. Unfortunately, Minoso, troops who have come and to sort of supervise what's going on, they have actually asked the Sahrawi authorities to open the crossing, you know, rather than tell the commercial vehicles to turn around and go home. The Sahrawis are not at all happy about that. How can it be resolved? Come back to the usual mantra of a referendum, please. You know, this is going to be the res- resolution of all of the problems, all the human rights abuses, everything that happens in Western Sahara would be solved if they would just carry out the mission that they were set up to do, which was to hold a referendum of self-determination. I mean, one of the comments that was made by one of the uh, human rights defenders was, uh, if there's a crossing down to Mauritania, why not have a crossing to the Sahrawi refugee camps? And indeed, uh, that would no doubt be appreciated by the refugees and by you know, their, their own families on the other side of the wall. It may be that that would be put as a quid pro quo to keep the border open, Mauritanian crossing open. That's just pure speculation. And there are plenty of Western countries too and Eastern countries who are taking advantage of this occupation by entering Western Sahara and setting up businesses. Absolutely. The the organisation called Western Sahara Resource Watch keeps a very close eye on all of this. Every time they write to the firms involved and try to persuade them that it is not a good idea to be doing business in this way with moderate success. I mean, sometimes it leads a company to decide that indeed it it would prefer not to do this business, whatever it is. Sometimes they don't realise. Shipping companies, for example, that have been bringing gas or oil to uh, the occupied territory, they didn't really realise what they were doing and they've stopped. Or there were other shipping companies that were doing seismic sounding of potential for oil offshore of Western Sahara. And uh, that was just their business and they got him given a job and they saw where it was on the map and they went, but they didn't really understand the political situation. And so when they found out, they withdrew from doing that job. So there are companies that, that are motivated by good principles and who will stop doing it, but... One of the complaints at the moment is with Zeman, the German tech firm who are wanting to get very involved with solar energy or all aspects of electricity, I think. They've got a generation substation or something as well. The Europeans have been to their annual meetings. they protested, they've written letters, they've done everything, and Zeman still keeps doing what they're doing. So it is hard in some cases to persuade companies, what they should be doing. And also French company, Indian company, Turkish, they're all in there. That's right. And of course, when one of them goes, then another country gets courted by Morocco to get it set up. In the case of India, I mean, that was interesting some many years back. India was one of the countries that recognized the Sahrawi Democratic Republic declared by the Sahrawi people. When they went to negotiate a contract with 
Moroccan phosphate, they were told they couldn't keep recognizing the Sahrawi Republic like that, and they would have to uh, disavow it, which they did in the interest of the commercial enterprise and contract. And so now India has got a phosphate company that's a branch of the Moroccan company. They are importing phosphate. So it's not altogether surprising to see that they would then extend into bringing a company into occupied Western Sahara because, they, as it were, they've sold the pass on that uh, political issue. What's in it for Turkey? Yes, they've never been particularly involved. They're getting the fish meal, yes. That's a big business because they, uh, I think that some of the methods of fishing that environmentalists disapprove of get a lot of what's called bycatch. They might be fishing for, I don't know, sardines or octopus or squid or something. But then the way they drag their nets picks up everything. Sometimes the so-called bycatch just gets wasted and thrown back in the sea. But I think at other times they, it gets uh, used to make fish meal, which is used both in salmon farming, well, not just salmon, fish farming, and it's used in pet food of different kinds, I think. I'm not sure it's not even used as fertilizer, too, in some cases. So, yes, it was interesting that um, that we've managed to discover that Turkey has been importing a lot. At first, we used to monitor the phosphate ships, which was easy to do because there's a special pier where they come in and uh, a special wharf that was built for the bulk carriers and any bulk carrier is going to be a phosphate ship. So it was fairly easy to keep an eye on those shipments. But more latterly, we've been able to uh, extend the supervision to looking at other shipping that is also stealing the resources and fish meal is one of them. Some of it gets taken to a plant in Germany, in Bremen, where it gets processed in some way that can then get distributed around Europe. But this other lot is clearly going off to to Turkey. I don't know how they use it, whether they've got fish farming in Turkey or how they're using their fish meal, but clearly it's quite a big, valuable market for the uh, Moroccans. At least the Swiss supermarkets are doing the right thing. Oh, yes. After a lot of campaigning about the tomatoes, I mean, that's been going on for some years, campaign uh, against importing tomatoes from Western Sahara. All of these things, I suppose, one supermarket can take it off their shelves. But if you want the whole company to make a stand, it has to go up and up the echelons to get to the... uh, main governing body and, uh, and and then the board will perhaps make the right decision and I'm glad to say they have done and, and jointly with other supermarkets so it's very reassuring that there are some countries that have got strong principles and will stick by them. Looking specifically at human rights, so a significant day has just passed on the 30th of August Yes, it was a day of enforced disappearances. Unfortunately, there's a lot of that in the history of the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. 
starting in 1975 when they first invaded. Actually, 80% of the known cases of Enforcer's appearance happened during those first few years. But it's still going on, and it still happens. It's not quite as dramatic because people don't get put away for many, many years. They just get abducted, and the family doesn't know where they are, and they might be taken into Morocco out of Western Sahara or not. They might just be interrogated in the police, local police station. They never quite know where they've gone. Maybe after a few days of interrogation and torture, they get released again. But that is still an enforced disappearance, even if it's lasting just two days instead of two or 20 years, as some of them have. The um, organization that mostly is concerned about this, called Afapradeza, the Association of Families of uh, Sahrawi Prisoners and Disappeared, they say there's some thousands of disappearances that they've got records of, and still 400 that have never been accounted for. It's a very big issue for the Sahrawi people. Uh, it's good that it gets commemorated in places like Geneva. I remember, Kate, you talked about a person in Morocco who actually either discovered a mass grave or knew about mass graves, and he paid the price? He did. Yes, he was one of the people that we met. He was living in Guillemin, which is technically in um, Morocco, but it's a very heavily populated by Sahadawis in the south of Morocco. Counts himself as Sahadawis, but he, he joined the army, the Moroccan army, in 1975, he was in the Moroccan army. He was part of a group that sort of descended on nomadic families and just massacred them all and put them in a, a grave. They, I think they knew that he was Sahrawi. They didn't actually ask him to shoot his countrymen, but they did ask him to dispose of their livestock, and he wasn't willing to do that, and he deserted from the army. But he witnessed all the other, the, the, the mass grave and everything. You know, the first events were taking place in 1975, 76, something like that. But when we met him in 2013, we're talking about the forensic work that was being happening in, that had happened, was happening then, currently, in, in 30 plus years later, that was happening in the Basque country of Spain. They were able to identify the individuals in the mass grave through their forensic genetic work, whatever it was. And he was talking about this and the Moroccans don't want any of that information to be publicized. He got arrested, his family were persecuted. At first his sons were arrested at a football match and they were taken in for questioning and torture. It was alleged that they'd taken part in some brawl, which I don't think they had, but uh, that doesn't always matter in a Moroccan court, unfortunately. I think both of the sons had to stay a couple of years in prison, but they did get released. Maybe when they were getting released and they decided to arrest Dowdy, one of the ludicrous charges on which he was held was for possessing firearms. Now, when we visited him, he took us to his father's old house, which was a deserted house, and there was an overgrown garden. In it, there was a cannon, this very small cannon, scarcely a meter in length, I would think, 
and completely non-operational. It was a rusty relic, you know, like a sculpture in the garden. And that was one of the firearms that he was said to have possessed and he got arrested for. But he, he was in for a long time. I think he's been released now. You know, he was an elderly gentleman of 70 or something like that. So it was um, quite a hardship for him to have to be in prison all that time. And I'm sure he got tortured. I mean, they always do in Morocco, I'm afraid. Poor old daddy had a hard time. Is there a United Nations organisation that looks at these disappearances? Hopefully somewhere. I mean, this is why the um, group from Geneva put out that. It was it's based in Geneva because that's where the Human Rights Commission is based. Uh, I'm sure that they uh, will bring it up under various headings within the work of the Human Rights Commission, but exactly where and when, I'm not sure. The big press release that they put out contained a lot of information that relates it to decisions and and such of the uh, different bodies of the United Nations. So one could trace that back. I'm, I'm afraid I don't. The short answer is I don't know exactly where it would be addressed, but I'm quite sure they tried to bring it into the work of the Human Rights Commission. Just go back to trade for a moment. Well, one country which spoke about was Turkey with the fish meal. There was a ruling, wasn't there, a couple of years ago between the European Union against these trade deals with other countries because of the occupation by Morocco. It's in question at the moment. What's the story at the moment? It's a very frustrating and long drawn out argument that's been going on because Morocco wants above all to legitimize its occupation and one of the ways that it's found of doing that is to do it through the European Union. It carries a lot of favor there. They have three ambassadors or something like that dedicated to trying to think of a nice word, but anyway, persuading the um, European parliamentarians overlook uh, any transgressions in Western Sahara and to allow whatever they want to do to go ahead. It's quite a scandal, really, that Morocco has had, I'm not sure what the current situation is, but in the past, they have held the position of being the biggest recipient of European aid in the world. You know, So all the other needy countries around the Mediterranean that the European Union might be supporting, of all of those, Morocco gets the most money. And then they misuse it, I have to say, too. They that they come up with projects, they put a big sign up saying that something's going to be built or done or, or whatever and then nothing else happens and the money goes into the pockets of some Moroccan officials. But that seems to be what happens. But anyway, they have managed to create these different economic partnerships with, and they we had a fishing agreement. I think the whole thing is called the European Partnership Agreement and, and it covers the fishing agreement and it covers agriculture, maybe other things, but those are the two that concern Western Sahara because 90 plus percent of the fish in the fishing agreement come from the coast of Western Sahara and the agriculture is mostly these tomatoes, melons, cucumbers that are grown under glass in the desert in the south near to Dakhla where there's a huge water table 
we in Western Sahara Resorts would say that they are really exporting Western Sahara's water because the vegetables that they transport are sort of 90% water. And it's uh, fossil water. It's, it's very large, but it is finite. It belongs to the Saharawis. That's a big problem. It's also the way in which the issue pops up for the ordinary European supermarket shopper that they go to buy some cherry tomatoes out of season or well ahead of the European season, they can get freshly grown cherry tomatoes grown in Western Sahara, but they are marked as from Morocco. One of the parts of the campaign has been to make sure that everything that comes from Western Sahara is not marked as from Morocco. But in any case, Morocco managed to get the European Parliament to agree on this European um, settlement and not to exclude. We're not against their having a, a partnership agreement with Morocco. What we wanted them to exclude was any product coming from Western Sahara. Although it had quite a lot of support in the Parliament, and I think it was quite a close vote, the Moroccan side of the argument won. Legislation went through. The Polisario Front engaged a lawyer called Gilles Duvert in France, who is well versed in European law, and so he could look at this legislation and challenge it. And that's what happened. And his complaint, I'm calling it his complaint, but it's uh, on behalf of the Polisario Front, their complaint has been received and acknowledged, and they have said that they will examine it, which I suppose means that they may change the uh, legislation. A breakthrough as I say, it's like an arm wrestle and they go this way and that way. And, you know, for the moment, this is a, a plus for the Polisario front to have got this far. But, you know, who knows whether the next step will actually reform the, the, the law or, or not. There'll still be a big fight over what happens in this examination. From tomatoes to phosphate rock, we've got the regenerative thermal oxidizer. Can you explain? I thought it might be useful for the people in New Zealand particularly to actually understand how that West farmers went about changing their supply chain and excluding phosphate from Western Sahara. The phosphate from other sources, I mean, to put no final word on, uh, point on it, is smelly. This process apparently will reduce the odour coming from the uh, other phosphates and make it much more acceptable. So what it does, they, they at the time when farmers said they spent $5 million investing in this equipment, which at the time was round about the cost of a shipment of phosphate, we have said to Interactivity in the past, you only have to have one less shipment of phosphate and you can afford to have this equipment too, because they used to say they couldn't afford to do what West Farmers were doing. They were, uh, West Farmers is a big organization and intellectuality isn't it? such big, so big. And they said, oh no, they couldn't do that because um, the whole plant was very out of date. They would have to rejig the whole uh, processing plant. So anyway, that was their excuse, but I still, still thought the, the uh, New Zealand people are talking out the same argument saying that there really isn't a replacement for uh, Western Sahara phosphate, that, that this is the one that suits their needs, etc. And so I thought, well, 
it might help the New Zealand people to know that this equipment exists and, and uh, can be be found to work. It might help their campaign because that's, that's basically where the campaign rests at the moment is, is, is with New Zealand because they're still importing. Intertech Pivot did stop importing, but they just sourced their stuff from elsewhere. They just said, oh, they, they would get it from Togo instead. They, in the past, they said, oh, they couldn't get it from anywhere else, but now they are finding they can get it from somewhere else. We're hoping that the uh, New Zealand people will eventually make a good decision about it too. Finally, Kate, competitor to the Tour de France, two women. The cycle ride from Grenoble to uh, Geneva. There's a, a, a young woman called Miriam Narali, a research student in the UK. A family live in France. She and her sister, called Hadra, decided to ride their bicycles from Grenoble to uh, Geneva. They left on the 17th of August and they arrived on the 19th of August. So it took them the best part of three days to do the ride across the Alps. They brought with them a petition which had some signatures on it, but they are asking for more signatures. And I think we've posted it on our Facebook page, which is uh, Western Sahara Down Under uh, Facebook page, if anyone wants to sign it. In a word, they're asking Minerso to do the work that it was set up to do. It's as simple as that, but of course they've got several clauses of, of, of all the things that they um, are asking. Particularly want to relaunch the peace process. They want the United Nations to reappoint a special representative of the a personal envoy, I mean, of the Secretary General to uh, continue the peace process uh, negotiations. Have monitoring of human rights as part of the mandate of MINURSO which Morocco has fought very hard to exclude at every opportunity that they've, when we've uh, tried to raise it before, with the support of France, I might say, so that France got a veto power on the Security Council. So they're asking for political prisoners to be released. They're asking the United Nations generally to just abide by all the many resolutions that have been passed in the, uh, over the many years and in particular to move towards a referendum of self-determination. They did a very big three-day bike ride, but <laughs> not quite the Couture de France, which goes on for days and weeks, but three cheers for Miriam and her sister. And thanks once again to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 
GCR Radical Radio。Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12 p.m. on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Listeners to this program know that the Medical Association for the Prevention of War Australia is a professional non-for-profit organisation that works to promote peace and disarmament. MAPW aims to reduce the physical and psychological impact as well as environmental effects of wars throughout the world. MAPW has branches in every state and territory in Australia. The current president is Dr Sue Wareham. She is also on the boards of International Physicians for the Prevention of War, ICANN Australia, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and Australia's for War Powers Reform and she's a former Canberra GP. Sue's latest contribution to Pearls and Irritations is titled Government Must Stop Militarising Our Biggest Challenges, and I spoke to Sue late last week. Sue, we have a Prime Minister who appears to be very keen to deploy our defence forces within Australia. It's already happening, and a proposed legislation will only increase the tendency which we'll discuss in a moment, what can you point to as the problems or non-advisability of involving the military in areas such as bushfires and pandemics? There are problems in getting the military involved in managing bushfires, um, but I think we need to go back to the first problem. The, The overarching problem is that the Prime Minister seems to be trying to militarise problems which are really not military problems to start with and bushfires and other impacts of climate change are not military problems and we need to be looking at solutions far away from the ADF. But there are some specific problems in involving the ADF in fighting bushfires and primarily it's not the ADF role. The ADF role is to protect Australia militarily and it's not their primary role to protect Australia from bushfires and other natural disasters. I'd not be disputing that there could occasionally be a role for some ADF equipment or, or personnel in extreme circumstances where other facilities don't exist. But what the Prime Minister seems to have in mind is something more than that, involving the ADF more readily at the expense of providing our bushfire and emergency services with what they need to do the job. The Prime Minister's focus seems to be on finding more roles for the ADF rather than on properly preparing our fire and emergency services for the increased and more extreme bushfires that we know will come because he and other leaders are refusing to take climate change seriously. So it's just looking 
it seems to be militarising what is not basically a military problem. And of course, it's not only militarising the problem, it's defunding or not properly funding the proper agencies who should be dealing with bushfires. Yes, indeed, yes. And we've certainly seen that happen last year. The uh, Bushfire Emergency Services, the fire chiefs, wanted to meet with the Prime Minister and pretty shockingly, uh, scandalously really, he wouldn't meet with our fire chief last year. They knew that really extreme conditions were coming. It was likely to be an extremely bad summer. They needed to meet with the leader of our country and he wouldn't meet with them. And we saw what, saw what happened last summer. But also, it's, it's not just refusing to meet with them, it's just sort of turning a blind eye to the whole problem. Last year also there were requests for and previously there were requests for more funding for aerial firefighting equipment, water bombers etc. That's been denied also. So it only seemed when the Prime Minister was politically in trouble because he was away at the time that the fires were becoming an already extreme over last summer. It only seemed then that he came up with the notion of calling in the military, which was totally um, inappropriate. It wasn't what was needed at the time. Anecdotal reports indicate that the ADF assistance that was provided last summer certainly certainly wasn't uh, a key in getting, getting on top of the fires that we had, had last summer. Um, in fact, I will mention that the terrible fire that burnt through 80% of Namachi National Park in the ACT was actually started by an army helicopter. So the point to make there is is not to point fingers of blame at anyone, but it's to state that we really need to fund and resource people who are trained and equipped and certified to do the job of fighting bushfires and not to be looking for extra roles in the ADF because it's not the ADF role to fight bushfires. Well, they're not trained properly, are they? And they could put both their own lives and other people's lives at danger. Yes, indeed. And it is a matter of the training. It's not a matter of innate ability or dedication or anything like that. It's just a matter of um, what people are trained, equipped, funded and certified to do. And we need to look to the experts to do that. And that's our fire and emergency people. It's, It's not the ADF. But I think there's a bigger political question here too and um, looking at why the Prime Minister is choosing to find extra roles for the military in fighting bushfires and in other things. And it seems that you mentioned the issue of funding, Jan, and that's certainly a big one. We know that funding for a military is pretty much the one part of our budget that is sacrosanct. Um, and it's just going up astronomically at, at the rate of not further $270 billion over 10 years committed by the Prime Minister not so long ago, and that's in addition to our annual defence budget. Um, and there's nowhere else that has those sorts of figures dedicated, committed to them. A terribly vast amount of money going to tree, which is given priority, priority over other desperate needs, the military seem to be part of the Prime Minister and the government generally policy in a, in a range of areas. We've seen over years militarisation of our borders with Australian border force where there's increasing, increasing use and threat of armed force. 
in dealing with refugees. As we're certainly seeing it in our climate response, as mentioned, with, as with the Prime Minister trying to find roles for the military in tackling climate when we really have a desperate need to get down our carbon emissions urgently. We see it in our militarisation of our international relations where we should be putting huge amounts of money into diplomacy to improve our international relations, especially with China at the moment. But what we're seeing is reduction of our diplomacy to all-time pitifully low levels and vastly, uh, again, increasing our military capacity, which is very clearly pointed towards China really militarisation of our economy in some ways. When the Prime Minister talks about jobs, often that's in relation to jobs in the, quote, defence and security sector, end of quote. It's not only, but it's largely the weapons industry. So we're seeing the weapons industry seen as a huge source of jobs when we should be looking at other areas, more jobs in education, health, public transport, renewable energies, all sorts of areas could and should be providing more jobs, but they need the funding to do that. And we're seeing in our education system, I wouldn't call it militarising, that would be too strong a term, but it's it's more, more subtle than that. We're seeing intrusion of the weapons companies into our education system, especially at university level. There are a huge number of grants for university research in the weapons industry, but even in our secondary and even in primary schools, weapons industries have inroads there in providing STEM facilities, STEM education, and this shouldn't be provided by vested interest in industry, vested interest such as the weapons industry. So there are problems there even in our education which is not protected from the inroads of the vested interests of the weapons industry. In your area of health, we've got the the pandemic at the moment, which seems to be going on and on. I'd imagine that you've been concerned for many years of the underfunding of the health services, and now we have soldiers and others on the streets, in hospitals, doing work that maybe the police should have done or else medical people in the hospital should have been doing. Yes, it is a a further example and we should say that the pandemic that we have right now has been predicted. We might regard it as having come out of the blue and in some ways it did. You never know the timing of these things. But authorities have been saying for years that a pandemic is quite on the cards and that we need to be prepared for it. Well, that's one warning which has been ignored by the Australian government and other other governments of course while we've been focused on military threats and we've been ignoring the threat of, of pandemics, we've been ignoring the threat of, of climate disasters or tossing, we're ignoring the threat of nuclear weapons also the other huge threat to humanity so we seem to be placing undue emphasis on military threats and non other threats such as health threats and yes so when one overlooks threats such as a pandemic doesn't prepare for them then what do we do when when the pandemic strikes and the knee-jerk reaction is to find another role for the military there and I'm not criticising what the what the ADF have done in Victoria and perhaps it was needed at time but we should have been better prepared as a nation for pandemics of this sort so that the ADF can 
stick to what they're trained to do and we have resources that are prepared for other threats. And then there could be the slippery slide to abuse of power. We've seen what's happened in the northwest of the United States in the last couple of weeks when military units are brought in to so-called restore the peace. Yes, that is a huge problem with the Prime Minister's proposed legislation to make it easier to call in the ADF in times of, quote, national emergency, end of quote. Now, how do you define a national emergency? That might be anything the Prime Minister wants it to be. So, yes, what's happening in the United States, especially in Portland, Oregon, where national um, troops have been called in over the objections of the local authorities who didn't want um, force brought in in this way. But um, President has sent in the troops who are reportedly pulling protesters off the streets, unmarked themselves, the personnel, into unmarked cars. It really looks very, very bad and ugly. And we might say, well, that wouldn't happen in Australia. But I don't think we can be assured of that if proposed legislation allows for that sort of thing. And we can look at the example in 2007 of Prime Minister Howard, and it was pre-election. He presumably saw a possible electoral advantage, so he called in the troops with the Northern Northern Territory intervention troops into Indigenous communities. Now, this was a pretty shocking, and this was really a low level in our history, to be quite frank. The Aboriginal communities were barely consulted and yet they had military troops called in supposedly to deal with conditions in their their communities. It was humiliating and it was traumatising for them. So that sort of thing is possible and if Prime Minister Morrison wants to make that sort of thing easier to do, then um, that's something that we must oppose. Um, We could look also at the way in which the capacity for the Prime Minister to send our troops overseas to war is thoroughly abused, as Prime Minister Howe did in 2003, involving us in the war in Iraq, sending the troops to Iraq. It was hugely opposed by the Australian people. Um, The Prime Minister didn't consult Parliament um, at all, which is totally anti-democratic. It was a catastrophic decision at the time, and the results are still playing out. In the instance of sending our troops overseas to war, we need to involve Parliament in that decision and not leave it to the Prime Minister, Prime Minister with or without one or two Cabinet members beside him. So these decisions to deploy the, the troops have huge consequences and we don't want to make that decision easier. There need to be more constraints and more checks and balances on it. Finally, Sue, is there concern amongst many people that this legislation might be pushed through under the cover of COVID? Yes, there definitely is a concern with that and that was always a concern since COVID and since the cessation of Parliament as as we know it and we know that Parliament is still continuing and there are some parliamentary sessions online, long distance, which is sensible but certainly Parliament is not functioning in the way that it used to and in the way that it really needs to for a good, 
healthy democracy. So, yes, it does seem to be easier now for the Prime Minister to slip through things that otherwise might get greater scrutiny. And we need to be alert to that and we need to be looking very carefully at proposed legislation regardless of whether the rest of Parliament is uh, sitting in the usual fashion. And the Labor Party's position on this? I haven't heard anything from the Labor Party about this. I'm not sure of their position on it. Thank you, Sue. Jan, thank you. I've been speaking with Dr Sue Wareham, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War.